it says is a good thing. And so I will take his word and, and do not trust that he had me preach last so that if I, what I say is so offensive, you are going to leave the conference anyway. Um, so no harm done. It's the safest place to have a guest preacher speak. So um, let me ask you to join me as we ask the Lord for help um, over the next few minutes. Our Father, we are so thankful to you um, for your kindness and your goodness, your grace underneath which we gather this very day. Uh, we thank you that as your children, uh, we can gather with confidence that we do not need to be um, impressive, um, um, even for myself as I speak to a people whom I do not know, uh, but that we gather underneath our Father's love um, to speak about his Son and to fellowship together in the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would allow us even over the next few minutes to truly hear from you. Um, do not uh, allow us to, to do this work um, by ourselves. Um, for me in preaching and for um, all others in hearing, um, may you aid us. Open up our eyes that we might behold you. Um, give to us ears to hear. Um, allow, even as others have prayed in the past, um, for the people to hear a far better message than the one which is preached. We pray that the result of um, the articulation of truths from Scripture shall be that we shall know you more, um, love you more, desire you more, that we shall be encouraged, and that we shall depart from this place empowered to live lives that reflect your glory in us. Um, so, Lord, please come, and in accordance to your kindness and to your pity and mercy, um, would you aid me to be faithful to your word and to love the saints. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Um, the task that has been given to me is to speak about the inner life um, of a pastor. Um, um, a brother came um, before me and spoke about the structures of a church. And um, this someone in some ways relates to that because uh, when we speak about the structures of a church, we speak about the role of elders and the role of um, a pastor. In many ways, this is an important topic to finish off with um, because if we long for our churches, to be healthy, um, we, we have to acknowledge that the, the individuals who play that role of pastor um, or leaders in that congregation um, can be used of God um, to either help that church um, um, in a great way, or if they resist the very work of God, can also be of great detriment um, to that work. Um, so it is appropriate and right um, for us to, um, to wrap up by speaking to many of you who um, our leaders and to point you to a place where um, sadly many of us do not spend sufficient time um, looking at. I would describe um, the structures that were spoken of earlier as, as the womb which carries the life in the baby, uh, the life of the baby in, um, in a mother who's pregnant. The womb is a very important um, part of that baby's development, but the womb should never be confused for the life itself. For the life itself, and and um, in as much as we would never say to um, to one who is expectant and, and desiring and longing for um, the birth of a child, uh, be at ease. The womb is in place, and and all of those structures are functioning um, the way in which they do, even though the life um, that is supposed to be supported inside there is 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 not doing as well. In as much as we don't rejoice in that and just be, uh, take that for granted, but rather we would be greatly concerned and worried about how the child. Um, themselves are doing, I would, I would urge that in our churches, we should have not only an eye for the, for the very visible, the very obviously evident thing like, like our structures, uh, but that we should have an eye or, or sometimes even a nose um, for, for the life that is supposed to be flowing um, in our churches. And that's really what we're aiming for and speaking about when we talk about a healthy, a healthy church. John Calvin says this, true wisdom consists of two things, knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. He proceeds on to say that, that man's nature, um, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. If we long to see true life in our congregations. I, I suggest to you that it is quite important for us to understand the nature and constitution of our people and also understand the truth about our God. Let me bring that home to the topic then. 
and say that if, if that's true about our people and the nature of Christian ministry, that is true about pastors as well. You cannot have a healthy pastor if you do not have a pastor who is familiar, acquainted with self, who knows his true self, who faces himself in the mirror and does not believe the press, so to say, but, but sees himself as God sees him. One. And then secondly, for that pastor himself to come to terms with the man in the mirror as he truly is in light of who God is. If you shortcut any of those things, if you short-circuit any of those two things, you end up with something far less than a healthy pastor and that will mitigate any efforts to pursue health in his ministry. We'll spend a bulk of our time in Romans. So let me have you turn there. Romans in chapter 7. Romans in chapter 7. We are reading words of the apostle himself. Uh, when we read from verse um, 8 onwards, well, the entire book really. But, but I want you to see how Paul understands himself. Multiple little caveats as, as I begin here. I believe that the words Paul speaks in, in this very famous section um, uh, are really in reference, if you look at the entire argument of the book of Romans, are really in reference to um, Israel pre um, the pouring out of the Spirit, the understanding of the gospel. And yet I think what is key is for us to understand that the words that Paul speaks can be true even of a Christian if he seeks to fight his sin through the law as opposed to fighting his sin through the Spirit. And so that's why when we read this section, we find these words to be very familiar. Um, we can really identify with what Paul is saying here, which is um, really the main point that I'll be making here. So Romans in chapter 7 and verse 7. I'll read a rather lengthy portion just to set up um, this message for us. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life, proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do what I, for I do not do what I want to do, what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I serve um, the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Preacher, pastor, leader, if you want to get acquainted with yourself, it's useful to understand this particular portion and especially understand what the Bible teaches 
about indwelling sin. About indwelling sin. As a preacher, you are not um, superhuman, as many of your congregants think. As your pastor, you have the reality of sin that is within you, of the flesh that is against you, that you have to deal with every single day. And this passage teaches us um, multiple things about the flesh. So notice one, it, it teaches us in this section that sin dwells in us. Uh, there's multiple enemies that we have. We have the devil who's after us, right? Clearly taught in 1 Peter 5, is a roaring lion seeking whom to devour. We have the world which is against us, right? It, 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 the, the, the God small g of this world still rules over the culture and it is oppressive against the truths about God. But by far the greatest enemy that you face is the one who lives within you. Within you. In verse 8 in this particular section that we just read, we are told of this sin which responds to the law, the revelation about that which is good and that which is right, by seizing that opportunity and producing all kinds of covetousness. This is just one example that Paul is pointing out. You have the Ten Commandments, and the last commandment is, Thou shalt not covet. It's a good instruction from a good God. But Paul says, when I hear the law of God, right and true, you shall not covet. What my flesh does when it hears that particular law is it seizes an opportunity and produces the very thing that that law has, says, has said, Thou shalt not do. Not only does this sin dwell within, you can see that it is producing not just a little covetousness. It's, it's spoken of as a very fruitful, in a very negative way, right? Enemy within us. All manner and all types of sins can come up within us because of the sin that dwells in us. When I was thinking of all types of covetousness, it, it led me to meditate a little bit on, on what that would be. I'm a pastor, right? You're, you're, you're church leaders in one way or another. And I do not know if you're familiar with sins that dwell within you. If we just focus on that one sin of covetousness. The, 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 the temptation to covet roles and titles that are not yours. The temptation to covet giftedness that is not yours. Covet influence. That is not yours. Covet fruitfulness. That is not yours. Look over at your neighbor's church, your friend's ministry, and you see how the Lord is blessing it and increasing it. Covet opportunities. You call them, as we do today, platforms for ministry that are not yours. God has denied you those things. If you simply focus on um, the commandment itself, it speaks about covetousness for your neighbor's wife, for your neighbor's wealth, your neighbor's workers. It might be a lustful covetousness that leads you to covet your neighbor's wife. It might be another kind of covetousness even in light of what was even asked this very morning. Look at Pastor So-and-So's wife. Oh, I only wish my wife was like his wife. The law produces, or rather, or, or rather, when the law comes into contact with the sin that is in us, the sin that is in us has no limitations of the kinds of temptations that it can actually produce. question I'm asking as far as this section goes is, are we familiar with those particular sins or those particular temptations? The different ways in which we, because of our indwelling sin, might be tempted. In verse 11, it speaks about the sin that is in us. We've already seen not only is it producing all manner of temptations in us. Verse 11 speaks about that sin as, as something that is alive. Look at verse, seven, verse 11 of chapter 7. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Speaks about something very active and potent and strong and alive within us that is seeking to destroy us, bring an end to us. 
The flesh is not described as something important. It's alive. It's a lot. The word is pretty serious when you think about it. The, the word that's used about seizing an opportunity. That's uh, like a, a, a lion that's prowling, looking for the ignorant deer or the distracted one. And you're being informed that as a human being, a fallen human being, you have indwelling sin. And this is how it acts within you. In what ways has it been acting within you this week? Yeah. Are you aware of that? Are you alert to the reality that you have indwelling sin? And this is how it operates. The law, really the whole argument Paul is making here is the law is not sufficient, right, in fighting that sin. That's the argument he's been laying down from the very beginning to the very end. The knowledge of right and wrong has been granted to all men. The Jews who received the law of Moses in many ways received the revelation of that which is right and wrong that the Lord in some ways has put in all mankind. Romans 2.14 speaks about Gentiles who do not have the law yet doing what the law requires. They are a law to themselves even though they have not been granted that law. And by doing this they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So to some degree, all humanity has an understanding of that which is right and that which is wrong. Whether it's through the conscience that the Lord has given to all men or through the very clearly written law of God. What's important is to understand that the law is not evil or bad. Progress for us as pastors, really, progress for us as Christians doesn't come from hushing the voice of what is right and what is wrong because sometimes that's what we think being gospel-centered is. Just kind of hush, right? Um, the articulation of good and bad, right and wrong that the law um, exposes to us. But uh, the word of God, and even in this very section that we're reading, is clear that the law is good. It is good for it calls us to that which is blessed and happy and profitable and desirable. If you, if you think about what the world was or what the world will be, the world, what it will be, the heaven that we are promised, if you use those um, commonly used terms, right? The, 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 the life of the new heavens and the new earth. It's not a place where the law will be disregarded, where people will steal your stuff and yet they'll be forgiven. And your neighbor will punch you and spit on you, but there's mercy and grace. Amen? You don't want to live in a land like that. You really want to live in a land where the law is followed from the very heart. Not just the letter of it, but the spirit of it. It's a beautiful, glorious place. The law in itself is good. It is just, it accords to all um, that God is. God's righteous principles. It is holy. Its source is not carnal but divine. It is spiritual. It is concerned about the things of God, but all of those things said the law of God is powerless. The law is powerless. It can only instruct you on what to do, but it cannot aid you in doing the very thing it has asked you to do. It can tell you what is right and what is wrong, but it cannot produce it. So preacher, are you familiar with the fact that when your own conscience, your own understanding of that which is right and wrong, your own sermons that call people to walk in a particular way, if you were simply to take application points of do this and do that, stop doing this and stop doing that, apply the law to your own struggle with sin, all it does is increase sin. It cannot cure sin. You cannot know in your inner life, or even in your public life, any true growth or progress by applying a whole bunch of rules to the problem of sin. In this particular passage, it speaks to us about um, how sin is, 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 is capturing or seizing that opportunity so that the sinfulness of sin becomes all the more apparent. It proves to be death to those who are under the law. 
even though it calls you to do that which is good, because of the reality of the sin that is inside you, all that the law ends up showing you at the end of the day is you are falling far short of that which God requires. And instead of giving to you the life that is promised, it brings to you the condemnation and death that it also promises to those who do not fulfill the law. What those who seek to grow in just merely keeping the law by their own strength eventually do, is they end up being captives of sin. Because all the law can do is just increase your sin. You do this little test in your own home with your little children and you see that to be the reality. You tell a child, thou shalt not do this. Right? What do you think is produced in them? An instant desire to do the very thing that you've asked them not to do. God's telling us simply the more rules are revealed, the more of God's holiness is articulated to us in the law, all it ends up producing in us is more and more sin. A question that I have for us then here at the end is, uh, at the end of this first point is, do you know yourself? Do you know yourself? Do you know your sin patterns? Do you know your general temptations that maybe might be common temptations to all men, but you also know your tailor-made temptations for your very specific role and the challenges that are around you. Do you know yourself? Do you know your temptations as a father, your temptations as a man, as a pastor, as a husband? Are you familiar with your need for help? Have you come to the terms with your inability to keep this law? Have you seen yourself as Paul sees himself here where he cries out, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Pastor, are you there or are you more impressed with your own ability to actually keep the law? Are you so impressed with your own ability to keep the law that you think sometimes you can say words like this, sometimes me, I just don't understand other people. That's how he's speaking Kenya. Me, I. Is, is, a, is that a Nigerian thing? That's totally a Kenyan thing. It is a Nigerian thing. I have, I have a... Somebody's referring to the altar call back there, right? I, I see myself as something a little bit more special, stronger than other people. I, I distinguish myself, and, and, and because I'm a pastor, I, I am not quite struggling as the rest of you as my congregants are struggling. Have you maybe found a way of justifying yourself as a pastor? When you face your, the reality of your indwelling sin, and, and Paul is standing naked in that sense as he's speaking here, the apostle. This is the reality of indwelling sin and its power and potency and its ugliness and danger. But sometimes you can hush that voice, can't we? We can mask the reality of just how messed up we are, really, as all human beings are, including pastors, and mask that with perhaps your role in church. I, I find it very interesting when Jesus is speaking to the lawyer and, and, and he says, um, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he tells this line by saying, uh, but the lawyer seeking to justify himself said, who's my neighbor? It's, a, it's an art we're all quite familiar with. Uh, seeking to justify ourselves. Pastor, are you justifying yourself on the basis of your role. Maybe the way in which you hush the accusation, right, of your own conscience, or so if you so please, the law itself is by comforting yourself by saying, but I am pastor so-and-so. I am apostle, I am bishop, I am... Is that how you justify yourself? It's very easy to do that. Or maybe your giftedness. Look into the face of your sin and see all of its ugliness and the reality of indwelling sin. But instead of dealing with it as the scriptures call you to deal with it, you instead look and you say, but, 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 but look at me, I'm, I'm quite gifted. Yeah. I'm pretty good at what I do. Yeah. Yeah. And you hush that accusation. You hush that condemnation by staring at the face of your giftedness. Maybe your fruitfulness. Look at what, all that the Lord is doing through me. I preached again, and people are just falling over, converted all over. I keep hearing reports about how, just how good my preaching is. Someone else said it again. Pastor, your sermon on Sunday was everything. 
You like words like those, just like, you know, they're limitless. <laughs> and you know the reality that is going on inside you. You know the truth is your heart is accusing you. Yeah. That the image they have of you is a very wrong one. Yeah. But you see, look, the Lord is using me. Yeah. So it must be okay. I'll keep my sin undealt with. You're really justifying yourself using something different than what the Lord has called you to. Your last sermon, compliments by your members, compliments by your mentors, a kind of peculiar temptations for self-justification. Ignore indwelling sin and again, lean more on ah, but that person is a pretty great person and they think I'm pretty good, pretty awesome. All these things are leaves in the garden. Like Adam and Eve tried to hide themselves in their sin and shame with leaves. And God came and helped them. We can, as pastors, look to all the wrong places to deal with the reality about who we truly are. Pastor, you are not that impressive. Amen. The truth of... Romans 7 paints you and me in the ugliest fashion possible. And the reality is, we are just like every other man and woman in this world. Sinners in need of help. 724 wraps up this section very well. It doesn't stop with that. And I feel like 724, we don't really look at it often when it comes to this particular question portion. Paul wraps up the section with a question Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Who? Who? It's a good question. Not what, actually. Not what. But who? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he enters into chapter 8. Knowledge of God. Knowledge of God. Chapter 8 is about life in the spirit. So Femi came all the way up until this particular point. That was a beautiful articulation of the role of the Spirit. The promise of it, the granting of it. The, the way in which the Christian life is painted is it's an impossible life to live apart from the Spirit's work in us. The description of our sin is not like you and I have a couple of problems. Some slight misbehaviors that with some help and tweaking, we can actually be able to remedy. The way the Bible articulates our problem is that we are dead in our sin. And the only way in which we can know life to any degree is through the work of the Spirit. Look back at chapter 7 and verse 6 before you jump into chapter 8. In chapter 7 and verse 6, he articulates quite clearly, verse 6, but now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. This is what the life is supposed to be. What is the answer to the reality of my indwelling sin, my inner life? It's totally messed up because of my sin. How do I address it? I will never be able to address it through rule-keeping, through the law. What the gospel offers to you, pastor, to me, to every single um, individual, is the life in the spirit. And he calls it the new way. The new way. is something being offered to us here. So notice in chapter 8 and verse 1 what this new way of the spirit is. Three things really I want us to highlight here. This new way of the spirit is life in the spirit means no condemnation. No condemnation. Life in the spirit means our emancipation or our being set free from the power and potency of sin. Life in the spirit means power for sanctification, right? As we are made to look more and more like him. And life in the spirit means our adoption. Quickly, let's look at these things. Look at the first portion here as chapter 8 is beginning. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You have such a big problem. You have such a big problem. You need God. God is the only solution to the reality of your indwelling sin. You cannot look to fruitfulness, giftedness, compliments. None of those things can cover up for the reality of the sin that lives in you. But the good news is God has acted to address that sin for you, Pastor. Whatever sin it is that I'm addressing this morning, the Spirit knows what it is. And God is calling you to take that sin and to look to Him for help. And this is the kind of help He's offering you. Trinitarian help, if you so please. God, again from this morning you heard it, it's God referencing the Father. This life that is being offered to you has been willed by God Himself. But it has been accomplished by the Son on the cross. And it is applied potently by the Spirit of life. The whole Trinity is at work in these opening verses to grant to you this encouragement so that you need not despair. You need not sink under the weight of sin and guilt and shame because I know that's what some of you might be feeling this morning. When you face the reality of sin as a pastor, indwelling sin, and you know that your inner life is nothing like what it ought to be. You have no love for God as you ought to. Fidelity to God. Holiness and purity, sanctity does not truly define you if you stand bare before God. And the path you're most tempted to pursue and to seek is that of self-justification with all of these things. I beg you, turn away from that path. That path does not lead to life, it leads to death. Step back as a pastor in humility and acknowledge, I need help. And this is the good news for you. Help has been granted by the Father, purchased by the Son, and it is applied by the Spirit potently upon your heart. I love the phrase that he uses here about the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. This idea of law, it's speaking about a principle within you. Something potent. We spoke about the power of sin inside you. You remember? It dwells in you. It seizes opportunity. It kills. It destroys. That's sin. It's no small enemy. And that lives where? Within you. <laughs> Think about that. Within you. But enter another strength. The third person of the Trinity and he too is a power. And praise to God, a far greater power than the power of our sin. Oh, yes. And it's called here the power, or rather the, the law of the spirit of life. He alone is able to set you free. And in this opening section, he is able to set you free from the condemnation that the law brings. Because the spirit potently, powerfully applies to your life the reality of that which Christ has accomplished on the cross. So that what you're being called to is not just merely like a mental assimilation, an intellectual uh, grasp of what the gospel is. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I'm, I'm too great of a sinner, but Jesus is my great savior. And because he died on the cross, right, it's not by works, but by faith. I, I get it in my head. No, that's what salvation is. What Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross is applied in reality, objectively to your soul. So that it becomes true about you. It's not just like teaching a math class. And saying, hey, here's a formula for algebra. I can't remember anything I was taught there. So I, this illustration stops right there. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, I get it. I, okay, I use it. I, no. As a sinner with all of the realities that you know about yourself, you can truly... Be set free from that condemnation. Yes. Objectively, in reality, the Spirit accomplishes that work in us. He does that by granting to us true union with Christ in whom all of these blessings are found. This passage continues on to speak about how this Spirit grants an emancipation, a freedom. It's not only life given, but it is also life lived. It is possible now to have a true and sincere 
Christian walk, not just merely before men through hypocrisy, but also before God. And that is not accomplished through the law. Look at what it says. He just flips in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The beautiful thing here you're seeing is, not only is this life given for free, it's been granted to you not on the basis of who you are, on how good of a preacher you are, on how big your church is, on anything you have done. You come empty and vile. And the Lord grants to you this grace, this salvation, fully free. Life granted. But also note that that life does not stop there. It's not just about justification. Now I possess it. It's about true power. It's not just about union in his death. It's also resurrection into his life. And the believer starts evidencing grace and power, a change of his ways, all of it flowing not from the law, from greed, from putting your back into it, but flowing from a life that actually comes from the Spirit himself. It's not just merely life lived, it's life granted, it's life lived. Please note, Paul has not given them instructions. Has not told them, walk by the Spirit. That's going to come later. Here he's just telling them, this is just what happens. Someone who's dead, and because of receiving the gospel in that state, they come alive. Brother Pastor, let me encourage you this, this day. You, you might be under such guilt and judgment and condemnation and shame this very morning that you can't even see any glimmer of the Spirit's work in you. That might be you this morning. Might be you. So that when you see yourself, all you see is just your sin. It's just your sin. But let me encourage you, if you're a Christian, not for a pastor, if you're a Christian, if you've come empty, nothing in your hands have you brought, and you've received this work of grace from God through Christ, and the Spirit is in you, then there is evidence of God working in you. You might have lost sight of it. You might have comforted yourself with all these other self-justifications for so long that you have actually lost sight of genuine work inside you by the Spirit. I commend you to think deeply on that. And ask yourself whether you see any conviction of sin anywhere. That's the work of the Spirit. Any evidence of repentance. Perhaps remember yourself as you used to be. And see how far God has brought you. We don't necessarily focusing on all that yet needs to be done. And rejoice in the fact that this life has not only been given to me, this life to some measure is actually being lived and manifested in me. And if you've never really come to the cross empty-handed, come to the cross today. Doesn't matter if you're a pastor. A member became a Christian in our church just a couple of weeks ago. And we praise the Lord for it. She's a member. She wanted to go out and become a missionary in North Africa. And she came and she said, Pastor, last week, actually it was from this very passage, now that I think about it. Romans 8, 1. Eager to go and serve the Lord, I said, I don't think I had really understood grace. I think I was putting my confidence in myself, in my look at how good of a Christian I am. I even want to go out in a hard place and do missions. That's my justification. And empty she came, she just realized, no, I have nothing to offer to this God. He has offered me everything. Come like that, and you can know this very grace that is offered to you. Notice in verse 13 in this section, as we try and bring this to a close here. Um, in verse 13, even when it comes to the pursuit of sanctification, what Paul calls them to do is to fight their sin how? By the Spirit. But if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. By the Spirit, by the Spirit, by the Spirit. Not by the law, not by your strength. By the Spirit who has granted you life full and free. By the Spirit who offers you life in your day-to-day -day walk. So that you don't yield to those temptations inside you to pursue that which is truly death. But you start living as you are called to live. You see that you know what? To be a man 
It's not to be a man who has 17 women in town. That's what the world says. That's death. Who wants that? But you see, actually, to be faithful to my wife, to love her and care for her and pursue all of my joy and pleasure in her is actually life. It's good. It's peace right there. You start reclaiming all of the things that were corroded and corrupted in Genesis 3. And you walk in the ways in which the Lord is calling you to. By the Spirit would also mean that you dwell upon the things that the Spirit has revealed to us in His Word. The Son whom He reveals. You don't believe a lie about yourself in accordance to your flesh. But the Spirit also means that the very Son that the Spirit unites you to. You think right thoughts about Him. You think right thoughts about yourself. It's still by the Spirit that you're able to do that. By the Spirit, by the Spirit, by the Spirit. I want to think right thoughts about me. I want to think right thoughts about God. I want to think right thoughts about other people. And I'm doing all of that, leaning upon the potency of the Spirit to renew my mind and renew my life. In this section, it climaxes with this idea of adoption. This life in the Spirit is life as a son. It doesn't get better than that. You know that. It doesn't get better than that. Justification is simply a journey towards this. This, if you so please, is the destination. Look at how he wraps up here. This is ludicrous, if you so please. Start from verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom you cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. I just love how every single thing he says there about sonship, he says about the spirit. He's all over. Everywhere. How do you know that you're truly a son? Because you're being led by the spirit. Why is it that you do not fear because the spirit you received is not a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of adoption as a son? How are you really, really, really sure? Well, the spirit himself, himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God. That's what is working in us. Not pressure, performance, pastor. Is your church growing? It's not growing. Are you really a Christian? Do you really have the Holy Spirit? You're looking there for your affirmation. The Spirit is pointing you to you as a Christian. He is what you have become because of what Christ Jesus has done. And what is being powerfully and potently applied to you. You have been given a status that is so far higher than the name pastor or bishop, or apostle, or CEO, or you fill in the blank. Far higher than that. What is that title? Son. Son. That has been granted to you freely and fully. Pastor, meditate on that. In fact, in many ways I'd say, Pastor, you want to really soak yourself into that truth and ensure that your pastor-ness does not become your identity. Because there's no way you can have a healthy life a healthy inner life, if you have not embraced salvation as it has been poured out to you fully and freely by God and applied to you by the Spirit. And this is where it ends. You have become a son. That's a status. Adam and Eve lost that status, if you so please, in the Garden of Eden. The genealogy in chapter 3 of Luke, as it comes to an end, speaks about Jesus as the Son of God and Adam as the Son of God. But they failed to walk in those ways. Hosea will speak about Israel generally as the son of God. I called my son out of Egypt. But you know how they lived their lives. But then comes the son of God, Jesus Christ, who lives the life that everyone failed. Israel failed to live. Adam failed to live. And now the spirit who baptizes us into the son allows us to possess that grand status. We are sons. Pastor, boast in that. If you're going to boast in anything, don't boast in the number of followers you have on social media, number of people you have sent out to plant churches. Boast in the fact that I have become a son. But notice that that also means the emotions that accompany a son. Not just the status of a son, but the heart of a son. And that's where you start really getting into the nitty-gritties, isn't it? It's not about what things made up the ingredients, but how does the food actually taste? 
Because if you tell me I did this, I did this, I did this, but what you've come out with is just clearly not what you're talking about. We have all the right theology, but in our hearts we are still being controlled with fear. Is that what it says here? Fear. Fear of people. Fear of opinions. Fear of failure. Fear, fear, fear. I don't really know who I am. Do I want to really know that I've grasped this grace that has been fully poured out to me? Do I have the heart of a son, a child? Even when I have sinned. I have a little daughter. I hope they never grow up. <laughs> She's turning three shortly. She's called Eden. When I punish Eden, which I hate doing, but when I discipline Eden and she's crying, guess what she does after I finish punishing her? She stretches out her little pinky to me to kiss it and blow on it, to express to her comfort and care and compassion. I just punished her. And yet because she's my child, where does she go to after that? Back to me again. Even then she knows she's so safe on my laps. That's my God. He's not judging me and examining me and seeing whether I am enough the way my friends might around me. And when they sniff a little sin, they say, ah, and you're a pastor. My God sees all of that and more. Chapter 7. And he has addressed all of it by sending his son to die on the cross and potently applied it by the Spirit to my life. And he has called me son. When I'm running back, his arms are wide open. He is sprinting at me, not away from me. Here's my ring. Here's my cloak. Slaughter the fat and calf. My son. Examine your own heart, pastor. You might be preaching the right theology, but you haven't really believed it. Don't ignore the way in which you deal with your own indwelling sin. Because if you ignore the way in which you're dealing with your own indwelling sin, the reality is you will most likely end up preaching the true gospel to your people, but modeling for them a false gospel. And that cannot lead to a healthy church. Because even though we look so much at the Reformation, where so many truths were reclaimed, the truth is we also want a revival. We want those truths to bring about true change in us. True renewal, if you so please. We don't just want a mental assimilation of these things. We want life for our people. That's what we offer to our people on a Sunday to Sunday. And how can I offer to them that which I'm not pursuing in my own soul? And it all starts off with what are you doing with your indwelling sin? Oh, I urge you to examine the idols that are in you. Look, find them out. How are you justifying yourself? Fear is normally a very useful place to start off if you're trying to trace down idols. What things am I most afraid of? Fear of being exposed. I think it's Ed Welch who speaks about this in People Are Big and God Is Small. Fear of being exposed. I don't really want people to know who I really am. It's just saying the reality I've not basked in the presence of God, naked and unashamed like we were in the garden. And that fear has been addressed, that shame has been addressed, that guilt has been addressed fully through his son. Pastor, that is literally like a couple of times a day job for our own souls. How are you dealing with your idols? Do you know them? Don't hush the exposure by God of those idols. Take them to the cross. Take them to the cross. Say, so Lord, here I am, your child, not your pastor. Your child, would you cleanse me? Would you wash me? Would you pardon me? There's a man um, who said, I think it was John Bunyan. He said, run, John, run, the gospel demands, but neither gives me feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and then gives me wings. And, and what he's saying is if you just stop off with the fast portion, with the law, condemnation is all you end up with. And you might end up oscillating as a pastor between two extremes, guilt and shame because of the law, and then hyper grace just saying, no, the gospel forgives all. But the life that is day by day, it actually is empowered by that very same good news.
Let me leave you with a quote from Calvin as well. He says, the gospel, so to speak, is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. So preacher, in your very preaching to people, would you strive to be a fast partaker of those very same truths? Let those very truths you're offering to others possess your own soul. Don't quit preparing that someone until it has led you to worship. See God. Don't just know God in your head. Let it affect you. Allow it to transform you. Allow it to lead you to repentance. Respond, respond to your own altar calls, which I discourage you from having. In your shepherding, don't just share truth. Share your very own life. Oh, pastor, you will find such effectiveness when you mingle life and truth with your own soul and then just let that pour out into, the, uh, into your ministry. You'll be surprised. And this is, not a, this is not a truth. This is a truism. Sometimes true, sometimes not. But you will find that when you're sharing with people not just what you learned from a book or a really nifty-sounding quote, but the ways in which the Lord has been growing you, exposing your own idols, and helping you find your identity in him, you will find those things ending up having a ton of impact upon your own people. And that's how you want to do life with your people. Let your inner life dictate the way in which you shepherd your very own people. Invite people into your own confession of sins and lamentation. Don't hide those things from your people. You don't want the way in which you are suffering and the way in which you have even sinned to not affect your people and the way in which they view you and view the gospel. It's more useful for them to view you as one of them and to see that even you need Christ, even you need prayer, even you, pastor, need to be pastored sometimes. Don't keep that away. In times of weakness, in times of struggle, allow the very same truths that are a comfort to them to be a comfort to you and allow that to be exposed to them as well. I pray that the Lord will allow us as shepherds who are most tempted, if you so please, to hypocrisy. That through the very same gospel truths we preach day by day, that we would find our peace, our confidence and our assurance. And as the Lord continues to grow that in us, that he would allow our ministries to flourish. I'm um, through that.